Welcome to Distributing Solar. We speak with entrepreneurs and experts working in the off-grid solar industry around the world, bringing to life how distributed solar is changing lives in emerging markets. In this conversation, we speak with Tobias Engelmeyer, founder of TFE Energy and Village Data Analytics. We speak about the need for robust data in emerging markets and the developments in digitalization within the off-grid energy sector. TFE Energy has a recent report on digitalization, which discusses the trends around digital payments, digital operations, and digital planning in great detail. Their work is based on 12 in-depth case studies with around 50 interviews and over 300 companies screened. And it is the first comprehensive assessment of how data and digital solutions are deployed in the energy access market. We speak a bit about their findings in this report. However, our conversation focuses primarily on Tobias's work in village data analytics, or VIDA as it's also known, and their work in using advanced data analytics to accelerate the deployment of off-grid energy solutions. The potential impact of VIDA's work extends beyond the energy sector. And we also discuss their recent work in Ethiopia, where their analytics has been applied to the healthcare sector to help determine which health clinics have the broadest reach of customers and can serve most people during COVID-19. We hope you enjoy this episode. Tobias, welcome to Distributing Solar. We're delighted to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Tobias, you are founder and managing director of TFE Energy and also founder of Village Data Analytics and a number of organizations within the energy and development sector. Can you start by telling us about your background and how did you come to work in the energy access sector and what are you focused on at the moment? Yeah, sure. So I see myself as a mission-driven entrepreneur. I'm very, very interested in, concerned about, but also optimistic about the future of development and interlinked with that, the future of energy systems and climate. And I believe that a very powerful lever of creating change is through market mechanisms, through building solutions that are taken up in the market. So through an entrepreneurial approach rather than, or in addition to perhaps the regulations and and larger developmental approaches that you see. Uh, So that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years. I lived in India for a long time. I'm an kind of incurable Indophile. I have built two businesses there. And uh, now we work with TFE and Village Data Analytics. We work in uh, South Asia. We work a lot in Southeast Asia, uh, places like Papua New Guinea and, and Myanmar. But the main area of work now is Africa. And your area of focus, it seems, is around research and compiling information around, in particular, digitization within the energy access sector. Last year, you provided and published a pretty extensive report on digitalization in energy titled Energy Access, Data and Digital Solutions, which was supported by the German Federal Ministry of Economic Affairs and Energy. There's a huge amount in that report, uh, and it's a really fascinating read. Unfortunately, way more than we have time to discuss here at the moment, but I think it provides a very helpful initial framework and good starting point for our discussion. So I wondered if we could perhaps start by just discussing that report and some of the key takeaways of the report that you found most interesting or most valuable. So Eugene, if you allow me to take one step back from that, and so the idea or the reason why we wanted to do 
research on how data is used in energy access is because, and, and you'll know that from your other interactions and your own readings and research, but the energy access market is as a whole not performing as well as it should if we want to achieve the goals that we have set for ourselves, namely Sustainable Development Goal 7, Universal Access to Quality and Energy by 2030. And that's not a judgment on the companies working in the field. They're doing a stellar job and working in a you know, very difficult environment. But it's a kind of, it's a statement more, a judgment more on the overall societal achievement and, and the state and the situation where we're currently at. So we're not electrifying people fast enough. Um, that's just a fact at the moment. We need, to, we need a step change in how, how this. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are various reasons for that. If you like, we can go into them. But for the moment, let's just stop here and say that's the situation. At the same time, there is, of course, a large global sea change that we experience um, with respect to digitalization and data, or you know, however you want to call it. But essentially, it is the, the unprecedented amount of data we generate, we store, we transmit, and we can now increasingly easily analyze and up to now, this shift, this global change of digitalization that has completely kind of appended all kinds of industries and, and has come into all aspects of our lives has only partially changed the way development is done, development work is done, development infrastructure is built, development policy decisions are made, development investments are made in these remote frontier markets that uh, remain to be electrified. And it's only partially been used by companies and customers. But that is changing very rapidly. And we had a feeling for this before we actually got into the research, just by interacting with the companies we know in the field and, and the various stakeholders. You know, there's some really novel and, and innovative and great things happening. First of all, there's more data that's becoming available. And then there's there are very smart things that are being done with this data, both, you know, in terms of product design or, or business model development, etc. So that was the starting point. And then we kind of didn't find any research that we found practical, specific, and, and relevant enough to showcase where digitalization in energy access stands today and how these very, very interesting new solutions are coming up, and what their potential is, and how they could really completely transform the market and provide exactly that step change in the trajectory that we need to um, achieve universal access to electricity, to energy. Thank you for that that contextualization of where the report came from. I think that's really helpful. And so, as you mentioned, and maybe that is a good place to start, then you said the pace of electrification is not happening nearly fast enough. And it seems at the moment, certainly from the research that you've done, that we are not on track to reach SDG 7 goals for electrification for everyone by 2030, and there will be a significant shortfalls. What have you identified as the main reasons for that lack of reaching those targets? So you'll find, of course, many people with many opinions, many different ways of structuring that question and framing the the challenge. The way we have done it is we looked at it again from the point of view of distributed energy solution companies that are either selling solar home systems or solar products or building mini grids more than from the point of view of, of utilities that are planning to expand the grid because, you know, they do that in the same way they've done it for many years. And you know, that's that's changing very slowly. So we are placing our hope in the distributed and market-based solutions. And we framed their challenge in the following way. We said, fundamentally, they need to reach a level of scale that they do not have at the moment. 
scale that lives up to the size of the challenge or opportunity, a scale that, that allows them to bring down the cost of service, of electricity provided, whatever it is, to a level that is really a game changer for the consumers and also a scale that is attractive for investors to start looking at. At the moment, the transaction costs are too high. The numbers just don't really add up. But it's only now beginning that you get the kinds of investors that can put in the amount of money that you again need in order to truly serve. We're talking about you know anywhere between 800 million to 2 billion people, depending on how you define energy access. So we said these are the, the challenges. How do you reach scale? How do you make business and investment risks more transparent? And how do you bring down the costs of doing business and ultimately the cost of the kilowatt hour sold or the energy-based service sold? So these are the three challenges we identified. And then we looked at how different digital and data solutions specifically address these three challenges. Perfect. And if you'd be happy to start us off, I, I know we don't have a lot of time to go into each of these topics in a lot of detail, but if you could begin just to give us a quick overview of each of these sectors, which you've highlighted as digital payments, digital planning and digital operations. So if you allow, I'll just go through it in the order that I have in mind, which is necessarily chronology. But the most important digital solution, by far the most impactful current digital solution is digital payments, because that has unlocked the consumer market and consumer finance. And that has really changed the market dramatically in the last couple of years. Without digital payments, you don't have, you can't really access the customer and you can't really sell these products that are like all renewables-based like uh, products are CapEx-heavy and OPEX-light and therefore need some kind of financing to be palatable to consumers. And that, of course, is again driven by the enormous uptake of mobile phones and existing mobile payment systems. Um, so there's a whole layering of different value providers that leads to digital payments for energy access. Great. And to clarify for our listeners as well, when we speak about digital payments, most typically within the off-grid sector, we think about mobile money, which I think has been the yeah. most popular technology with regards to paygo technologies, for instance. But it's also part of, I think, a broader technological shift with regards to not just mobile money, mobile phones and smartphones, but also cryptocurrency, credit analytics, and mm -hmm. other technologies within that space as well, be that key codes, for example, with some of the controller systems that the digital companies are using. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it starts even with these scratch cards, you know, it starts with very kind of simple tools, if you like. And then uh, if you go through it at the other end of the spectrum, there might be blockchain solutions. Can you tell us more about the scratch cards? I think that's not something that we typically talk about within the energy access with regards to especially Pago solutions. Well, it's, it's very simple. It's basically you have a, it's like a prepaid system where you unlock an amount of energy to consume once you've bought a scratch card. We put this, you know, at the beginning of our digital story because this is, this is done through a phone. So you need to do it uh, through a phone. It usually is a, an SMS based service. So you don't even need a smartphone for it. Many of these services work without uh, 3G, 4G networks. Uh, so they're kind of robust and, and workable in the environments where they are required. That's where it starts. And then you have all kinds of different advanced, if you like, more complex payment systems that can be used. And I think what the market is currently trying to figure out is what is the right level of technology 
for what the market needs and what the consumers can deal with and need. And, and many of the companies that have tried very advanced technologies, and I'm thinking about blockchain, many of them haven't really been, you know, making much of a breakthrough because easier, simpler technologies still work in the context that we currently have. So we really focus on the part that is the, the customer facing side where you buy a, basically a, a simple mobile fund collection device, either for the energy system that you're selling or for any additional energy based products that you're selling. And then perhaps on top of that, the analytics uh, that allows you to determine where potentially credit worthy customers could be. So one thing that we found and that's quite interesting is that in the, in this market, there are a lot of good ideas and there's a lot of technology talk and there is a lot of technologies that are tried in certain places, but most of the everyday work is under the hood is far less tech enabled at the end of the day than one would immediately think. So there's, there's pioneers out there, there's new technologies, but that's kind of filtering, trickling down little by little, whereas perhaps the mobile payments side of it is the most advanced, I would say. So it's, we saw that quite a lot is that there's a lot being done in the market. There's a lot being tried in the market. But, and again, that might be linked to the fact the market still isn't that large because many of the solutions, it's also something we discuss in the report, that we're seeing now an emergence of specialized solutions, providers that provide digital solutions that specifically fit this market. Before that, there was a lot of companies and, and users worked with what was available in the market. There's a, there's a big technology adoption story that is happening at the same time as the technology innovation story that we're highlighting in the report. And I think that's actually interesting in the way you've categorized your digital solutions in order of planning platforms, operations and payments, which I guess follows the value chain of the off-grid solar sector. And that makes sense from an investor's point of view or as an entrepreneur who's looking to deploy the technologies. But as you say, from a chronological point of view, it's actually, it seems as though your depiction of it is the exact reverse, right? So it starts with digital payments, which are closest to the consumer, the operations, which is probably one step removed, then platforms, which is another step removed, and then the planning, which is probably the furthest away. And in that sense, the technology adoption seems to have started with the consumer and is now moving up the value chain, if you will, towards the investors and the planners. Is that how you think about it as well? And is that a good depiction of how you think about the developments? It, it is actually, it's a good depiction. I think that's right. When we look at what has happened in the last five years, if I were to predict how this would change in the next five years, my hope is that there's more of a push coming from the investors, banks, insurers to demand data transparency and data-based decision-making in order to grow from where the market currently is to that order of magnitude larger that we need to get to. Great. So around digital planning, can you perhaps start by giving us a bit of an overview of the different opportunities within that sector, the solutions that we've seen, and then moving on to village data analytics and what you're looking to do with Vida there? Yeah. So the reason why digital planning is so interesting and important, in my view, is that it allows us to make, again, data-based decisions about how best to electrify this very large unelectrified population. 
These decisions are made primarily by governments that make decisions about what their electrification strategy is, which is to a large degree a question of where to electrify by extending the grid and where to electrify by allowing markets for distributed solutions to take place and how to make those markets work, which is a really interesting question. And these data-based decisions are also to be made by the companies, both the mini-grid developers that need to understand where good potential sites are at scale. So currently, a mini-grid developer would develop at a time maybe between 10 to 30 mini-grids. Down the line, at some point, and I'm talking about two years from now, they'll need to develop 200 to 300. They need to be much larger numbers of mini-grids that need to be developed. For that, they need to have new, much more professional site identification and project development processes than what are currently in place. This is shadowed a little bit by the tender processes that you see in some countries, where the government takes that role and tenders out larger amounts of pre-selected sites. It is also important for solar home system companies that need to understand where to put up their uh, distribution centers, their sales centers, which areas to focus on, where to target their sales efforts, which is in a very large part of their ongoing business cost. And then in the, in the second row, you again have the banks, the investors, the insurers that work with these companies or the DFIs that work with the governments and the companies uh, and provide them with the, the funding or insurance they, they require. So all these stakeholders currently make decisions often based in very data lean environments. And they make decisions based on a, a highly imperfect set of in, information and data points. Often on the political side, there's a lot of politics in the decision-making process. On the company side, there's a lot of kind of opportunism or, or pragmatism, you could say, in the decision-making processes. So converting all these processes into much more data-driven professional comparable decision processes. That's what we understand by digital planning. We, we segmented into the, the different steps at which this happens. It's a very different thing if you work with the utility of a country and help them plan for grid extension, which is, for example, what MIT does or KTH, Columbia. It's a lot of the planning solutions, softwares are coming from a university environment, but are deployed through often consulting companies for countries. And then you go into the off-grid areas where village data analytics really fits in. And within the off-grid areas, then you go into individual site planning, which is where you get something like a Homer software that helps you to do the actual layout of a mini-grid, for instance. Great. And I realized that we actually started talking about village data analytics without necessarily introducing exactly what the, the focus of village data analytics is. So if you could start by telling us more about village data analytics as a independent company, as I understand, and what is its focus, what is its core product and who are its target customers? Yeah. So village data analytics was set up by TFE Energy and it was done with support of the European Space Agency. And our partnership with Applied AI, which is Germany's leading competence center for artificial intelligence. And Village Data Analytics is, you can think of it as a software enabled service. It's a software that we use internally to provide 
a service to customers. And what the software does is it uses satellite imagery and all kinds of other data sources. Uh, these could be survey data sources. It can be customer data sources that we work with quite a lot. It can be telecom data, different types of data that is available to us in a certain geography. And then there we have a what's called a library of algorithms where we can extract certain types of information from these data sources and make a prediction about one of these very data lean remote areas. Where do people live? How much would it cost to build a grid in a certain place or to, to reach a certain place to do business there? What would be the potential energy demand there? What are the economic activities in that area, which helps you understand what their ability to pay is for electricity? We can compare different options. We can say, where would it be best to build a mini grid versus where would it be best to extend the grid versus where would it be best to just work with solar home systems? So you can think of it a little bit like a business-specific Google Maps for these remote off-grid areas. Right. So as I understand it, you take data in from a variety of sources. So be that geospatial data, be that economic data, perhaps, or data from local institutions or local governments. You aggregate that data and provide analytical capabilities so you can examine that data and then make recommendations for where people should either locate a mini grid site, where people should, for example, locate their solar home systems, office locations or distribution centers, and then really provide, I guess, that business intelligence for people to make data driven decisions. That's correct. And we work very hard to ensure that it can be used as a decision-making tool, not merely a visualization tool. So we don't want to describe reality, but we want to help specific users make better decisions. And these decisions are often digital decisions. Yes, no. Should I go there? Should I not go there? Should I build my grid here? Should I build my grid there? Which of these five areas is better for me to sell my solar home systems in? So it uses all these different data inputs, but at the end of the day, it gives a pretty simple recommendation to a user. And it seems as though the the lack of such a solution within the industry at the moment is driven both by lack of available data, accuracy of the data, and then someone else having taken the time to aggregate, clean the data and make sure it's accurate. On each of those fronts, how does Village Data Analytics innovate or change the current situation? Are you able to find new data sets that were currently not available? Or is it about using AI or machine learning algorithms to try and clean or impute some of the data that doesn't seem to be available at the moment? Yeah, that's a very good question. There are things that are changing in the world of data that we use, especially the amount of and the and the, and the breadth of satellite data is growing enormously. So that's its own industry. There's more and more satellites that are uh, spinning the, the planet every day almost. So the amount of data that we can have access to on the satellite imagery side is growing at a very, very fast rate. At the same time, we use very large computing. We have a computer center here in, in Munich with IBM computers. And the cost of computing and of transferring large amounts of data from one place to another is coming down very, very rapidly. And that's important. A third factor is that there's an increasingly vibrant global ecosystem of algorithms that are being developed uh, that we can tap into, that we can amend, that we can change. So we're not building all of this from scratch ourselves 
But our role is to see which of these pieces is most useful to the specific energy access market and then adapt it where needed and bring it together in a way that makes sense. The last part that is very important is that we have a strong team in Africa and also our team in Germany. These are people who are, uh, quite a few of them are energy access engineers. and They have been spending many, many years in Asia and in Africa, building mini grids, building products for mini grids, distributing, selling solar home systems. So they know these frontier markets bottom up. And with their help, we then build models that can take the parameters that we extract from the data sources using algorithms and put them into a, an analysis that gives us an output, an insight that is useful for specific players in the energy access industry. Great. And I think it'll be helpful to bring that to life with either some examples of use cases or projects that you've already worked on. So if you'd like to speak about existing projects or potential projects, that would be great. So we are currently working with two types of users for village data analytics. One is the development finance institutions that in turn work with governments to help them improve their electrification planning. And there, for just to give one example, we've just worked in Ethiopia. This is also partially published where we screened the entire country and identified where the settlements are, which is already a kind of an insight. Then we compared the settlements based on different village data analytics characteristics using analysis of the, the clusters of villages, distances to important places, biggest, bigger towns, the type of infrastructure they have available, both the electricity infrastructure, so where is on-grid, where is off-grid, but also road infrastructure. We look at agricultural inputs to understand where agricultural value chains lie. Um, we then look into villages and look at clusters, at the makeup of villages, the distances between houses, the shape, these kind of things that give you important information about what the cost of laying the grid could be. So we've done this analysis for the entire country. And plus, we then rank these several thousand off-grid villages that are larger off-grid villages we found, rank them by different factors that are relevant to different types of users. For example, um, if you are a mini-grid company, then these are the, the, the hundred top villages that you might want to go for first. Or if you are the government and you want to entice uh, mini-grid companies to come to invest in your country, then you might want to single out a certain number of uh, villages for them to do business in. Or you might want to understand where the impact could be highest, which are the ones that are most disadvantaged for certain regions, which are the ones that are most remote from infrastructure, which are the ones that are least likely to be electrified by extending the grid. So you can, you can take the same input, the same analysis and rank it according to different types of priorities. And this is information that is then given back to the government and helps the government in different ways to plan their electrification. It helps them to identify where they should go for off-grid solutions versus on-grid solutions. It helps them to bucket off-grid sites and move them towards a marketplace, often through a tender. It could be we, we can use the same kind of information to identify or to estimate what viability gaps could be, so what required subsidy levels could be at the level of individual villages. 
Um, so that's one thing that we've done in Ethiopia. And then just to kind of add to that, when this COVID-19 situation started officially in, in around March, we thought about how we could help governments or what, how our tools could potentially help governments in Africa, especially respond to this health emergency. And we started to look at how we can help them identify off-grid health centers using our tools and make an assessment of which off-grid health centers should be electrified on a priority based on the population they serve. So how many people are they serving? And for that, for example, we developed an algorithm that looks at potential travel times for different people to their nearest health center. So to put it the other way around, for how many people is a certain health center the closest one that can be reached? And first step, perhaps quite simple uh, suggestion would be to electrify those health centers first that are crucial to the largest number of people around them. And that is something that we've done in another African country, which we currently can't name, but we've completed this analysis for around 1,500 health centers. That's on the side of the, the government where we, where we do work with development institutions and governments. When you look at the companies, we are currently working with a number of leading electrification companies. And on the one side, these are microgrid companies. On the other side, these are solar home systems companies. For the solar home systems companies, uh, we help them identify sales regions. And we work with them in a very iterative manner where based on past sales success, we extract patterns and say, we think there are similar types of regions to be found here and here and here. And uh, we therefore suggest that you should target your sales efforts in these regions. And then we get feedback. As with all these predictive and data technologies, we really rely on, on this feedback loop in order to improve what, we, what our predictions are. And our predictions are in cases wrong, but they are significantly better than what is currently available. So in case we're, we're wrong, they give us feedback, we, we adjust, we fine-tune, we learn why we went wrong, and then send them in a different direction. Uh, so that's on the solar home system side. On the mini-grid company side, we work a lot with site selection. We identify a good site for mini-grid companies, we estimate what potential costs could be, what potential designs even could be for mini grids in a kind of rough manner, just looking at the distances and what's called a minimum spanning tree. And that's something that's quite interesting. We have tested that with a number of mini grid companies and we've tested it in different ways. We've worked with one company, PowerGen, that's also published on our website. They, they have in one country looked at potential mini grid sites in, in West Africa. And they have already done a lot of the work. They've done surveys. They went to all these places and it took them a certain number of months and it cost them a certain amount. And we were able to, using village data analytics, we were able to find very similar sites. So out of, I think, uh, around a hundred sites, we've identified 20. And of those 20, 17 were the same that this company, uh, PowerGen, had identified. But we're able to add different layers of information to it, a lot more contextual information about a village, uh, agriculture, connectivity, water, seasonality, all these kind of things. 
that adds to the survey data that they have collected. And we're able to test the validity of our prediction in this specific instance. We've done a different test with another company in another African country where we, where they said here are 20 existing mini grid sites and they gave us the locations for these sites and they've been up and running for a while. And they tasked us to say, using our tools, can we predict or can we tell them which sites we think are good sites and which sites we think are not so good sites? And we had a, a very high level of overlap in, in that exercise as well. So while we are deploying village data analytics, we always, in addition, have specific validation partnership or validation exercises with, with companies in the field. Great. And I'd love to hear more about some of these feedback loops that you've described and some of these predictive analytics, because I think intuitively we would say if we were, for example, locating a mini grid, I imagine things like population size, population density and distance from the existing national grid are the obvious factors that you would think are the most indicative of success of a mini grid. But which other ones have you seen as important? Is, for example, income generation more important or the presence of productive economic activity like agro-processing? Has there been any changes in what you thought are factors that are important or which ones that are underrated? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think we have enough data yet to make that kind of assessment. But the factors that we include in our analysis, we're looking at agricultural value chains, especially of cash crops. We're looking at potential anchor loads, schools, hospitals, and the like. We're looking at predicting average income levels in certain areas. We are looking at all kinds of proxies for energy demand and ability to pay um, that are often ratios between factors, the factors that you need. So, for, for example, you know, how, how much agricultural land is being cultivated per household in an area? Is this uh, seasonal, non-seasonal? Things like what are the road structures? Is a place at a crossroads, to put it simply? Or how far is it from the next marketplace, etc.? These are all important sources of income. So our unit of analysis is a village. And the area that we work on is remote villages. I don't think we could do the same, or it would be infinitely more complex and probably error-prone to do a similar assessment in a city. Because if you look at the city from space, you know you don't know what's in a 10-story building, right? There can be all kinds of people doing all kinds of things. If you use imagery and enrich that with on-ground data in the countryside, there is a significantly smaller number of potential activities happening, and that allows us to control the error. But there are enough different parameters that we can apply machine learning techniques to look for interesting patterns. And an interesting question, so there, there are certain things we're just learning now, but one thing is that uh, there will be cultural boundaries to our analysis and where are these where are those cultural boundaries i mean a very simple example is there's certain places where one household will have three buildings and there are other places where three households live in one building right and there are certain areas where people have one type of agriculture or one kind of cattle farming and there are changes after a while so certain patterns that we discern will have cultural boundaries and we're just now playing with that and learning where those could be yeah, that's fascinating. That's a whole additional level of complexity, I imagine. 
So if you allow me, there are a couple of observations that I think are interesting. Uh, one is that the kind of things that we're currently offering to our customers and users are only a portion of what we can potentially do, which reflect the current state of planning decision-making in the market or, or the product development that's happening at the same time as we do these projects. The product development is significantly further ahead of what we are really doing in the market. And an example is that a lot of the questions that people currently have are simpler questions. Where do people live? How many live there? What are distances to them and between them, for example, right? And to be able to just capture that, analyze it, is already very useful and in many ways novel in the environment where we work. To then add things like the socioeconomic patterns and various other correlations that we're looking for is in many cases beyond what can be brought into current decision-making processes, whether that's at the governmental level or at the level of companies. So it sounds like the potential benefit or value of the information is actually much broader than energy access in particular. But as I think you alluded to, you're already starting to see the applications to, say, health clinics or health centers and broader capabilities across the country. That's absolutely right. So we have a technological backend that is the data and the algorithms that captures and analyzes information about these remote areas. And on the front-end side, we can apply this to a lot of different types of industries and markets. Electrification is, of course, very central because electrification feeds into agriculture and education and health and all these other things. But we've explored solar irrigation or irrigation systems. We are exploring agricultural solutions currently. There are all kinds of different areas that we can look at. And that in part is driven by project opportunities that are coming up. So when customers ask us and say, can you help us go from, that was the case with the, the COVID-19 analysis, can you help us with that? Then we can fairly easily shift towards a new, perhaps initially adjacent field and then grow from there. But at the end of the day, what we can do is understand quite a lot, I think, about a pretty large part of the world that is currently in a very data lean environment. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there's huge potential value and opportunity in making this data usable to a wide number of players. What is the barrier towards faster adoption and acceleration of your capability? Is it that companies might not be willing to pay for it or able to afford to pay for the analysis? Or is it that people don't quite trust data and it isn't as embedded into our business working practices as it might be, for example, in Europe or, or the US? What are the, the barriers that are stopping people from knocking on your door and saying, please give me this data? It would be really useful. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, and something I'm, you know, of course, thinking about quite a lot. So one, one part of the answer that you mentioned already is that people are skeptical because there is a limited understanding of how these data technologies work in the market we work in. But people have had also bad experiences in the past with, um, a lot of the, the surveys, census data, information, that is existing out there currently and is being used is, is very inaccurate and very unreliable. 
And there are certain countries where the population might be as much as 20% higher or lower than what is officially stated. So there are huge variations in the current data gap. So that puts the whole idea of making data-based decisions or, or it creates certain skepticism about the ability to make data-based decisions or even to measure the impact, which you can use the same data-based decision-making tools to also measure the impact of decisions and what's actually changed afterwards. Uh, that's, I think, one. The second is that not everybody always wants the level of transparency that we might be able to provide. If you think about the field of electrification, electrification is a highly political topic. And perhaps, you know, you could argue in a democracy that might be rightly so, where, you know, there are different players, there are different you know, members of parliament, perhaps from different constituencies, and they want certain parts electrified rather than others primarily based on political calculations and not based on kind of an objective overall assessment. That's the second thing. A third area is that what we are currently doing is, well, and that's, that, that burden really is on us, and that's one thing that we're working very hard towards, is we need to fit what we do into existing decision-making processes rather than proposing a completely new decision-making process because that's just a much tougher fight. So if you bring an innovation to a market, as we do, then we need to find places where this innovation improves current, and by improving, I mean makes current decision-making processes cheaper, faster, and more reliable. And and that's the current, the most of the current conversations we're having. Now, once we have these conversations and we do work with customers and we show them what other things can be done, then we are starting to have a conversation about new types of decision-making processes, or if you like, enhanced decision-making processes. But it just takes time. And this industry, perhaps, that we work in is not renowned as one of the fastest in the world. Absolutely. I can imagine too that there are other more pressing day-to-day -day concerns for many of these companies and it seems a luxury to use some of the practices and use some of the data that you've been outlining. Yes, but that's an interesting, you're, you're right in that I think many, many might still see that and the pressing concerns are, you know, there's a government-driven kind of opportunity and there's a timeline and you need to raise the money and you need to find your site quickly and you need to, you know, close the deal and come up with some kind of a tariff and put all these things together in a kind of pretty quick. And now, of course, uh, at the moment, many of the electrification companies are struggling a lot because they cannot work in the places under lockdown conditions. They find it very difficult to reach their customers. And uh, so, so that is true. But having said that, an important reason why this industry is struggling, the electrification industry specifically, is struggling to become more profitable is because of errors made in planning. Solar home system companies spending a lot on ineffective sales processes. Credit uh, risk is, of course, a huge issue for them. Mini grid companies not spending enough time identifying good sites and then not spending enough time to determine the right size of system for that site. So right sizing is an enormous issue. So these are things that really hit the profitability. And at the moment, the market is still seeking to grow. It's a market that is partially driven by softer money. And, and so if you like, as the market becomes more professional and ready to scale and take on that large global challenge of electrifying everybody, I think that what we offer is going to be a much more core piece 
or will be a core piece of their ability to electrify at scale in an increasingly more professional manner. That certainly makes sense and I guess fits within our conception of how the benefits of data analytics have played out within the US and Europe and so on. Yeah. You've also embarked on a number of partnerships and maybe that's one way of accelerating the adoption of the technology and the data solutions. So one that stood out was with Odyssey Energy Solutions. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about some of the partnerships that you've set up and how do they work and what the opportunities are in those cases. So with Odyssey, we actually have an, a longer-term working relationship with them, also on the TFE side, pre-Village Data Analytics. But with Village Data Analytics, what we've now done is we have gone through, so our analysis can be presented in the Odyssey platform. And the Odyssey platform is a platform that is used by electrification decision makers to monitor the entire process of electrification all the way to the later, you know, disbursement of, of subsidies. And our analysis can fit very neatly into this. Uh, and we've just gone through the entire process with Odyssey. Now, of course, as Odyssey is being used increasingly, um, there's good reason for the industry to agree on a standards in general and as on, on a standard platform like Odyssey to display, monitor and compare projects on standards when it comes to the quality assurance and the implementation quality, which is the other piece that we've worked on with Odyssey in the past. And, and the same is true for the way information about customers and sites is collected and presented. And so as Odyssey grows and we grow in different markets, there's quite a lot of a natural kind of link I see. And, you know, it's a small industry as well. So we speak with the same people about the same things a lot. And if we are on the same wavelength and our solutions are very easily integrated, then everybody benefits. Are there any other partnerships that you think are interesting or valuable for the deployment of your solution? So our most important partnership is with Applied AI on the technology development side. It originally came out of the Technical University. It was linked to the Technical University in Munich. Applied AI, in turn, is a partner of Google, right. um, of Microsoft, of IBM, of um, et cetera, et cetera, of all the larger players in Germany. And they are probably the key nodal center in Germany for the development of applied machine learning solutions and bringing that into specific products and solutions, exactly what we're doing. So that is a very, very important partnership. We have the partnership, of course, with the European Space Agency and the German DLR, the German Space Agency. That helps us on the satellite imagery side and all the kind of technology around that. Um, we have very important validation partnerships, I mentioned before, with the electrification companies that are working in the industry and that help us understand both whether our predictions are correct, but also what is required. What, what do they most need at the moment? What should we solve towards? And yeah, I think these are the most important ones. And for Village Data Analytics as a company, is your end goal to be a, a fully productized company? Because currently it feels as though a lot of the customers you're working with is primarily on a consultancy type basis. So you will yeah. have a clearly defined project where you have your key outputs and inputs and, and variables and so on and identify things you're looking to find out information about. Is the goal that you just become effectively a data platform and people can access your data and find their insights as they wish? What is the end goal, I guess, for village data analytics? 
Um, that is a potential goal for us. Yes. So uh, it might make sense for us to move towards a higher degree of standardization and to move towards a product. At the same time, if we're applying it as a, as a technology enabled service, as we do at the moment, allows us to interact very, very closely with the users. And at the moment, the learning we get from this process is absolutely invaluable. So I wouldn't want to miss that. But the, there's a, the, the question is, it's a, it's a kind of larger strategic question, which also links to how we finance ourselves in the future. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. One thing that I don't have a good answer to at the moment, but something that's important to us and that we're thinking around is both the results of our work affect many people, hopefully positively, but, you know, potentially if we make bad projections, that might have a negative effect. So that's something we are very conscious of. And we try to understand currently whether there are any biases, for instance, gender biases in how our data is collected and the algorithms, but also the models and the kind of markets we focus on. There's a difference in whether you focus on the clean cooking market or on, say, milling machines. There's a difference in who the typical user would be and how that would impact development. As I said, I don't have good answers to this, but I just want to say that we are very aware of it. We are aware of the potential for mistakes. We are aware of the potential flaws and the biases. And we've set up an internal team, might be an exaggeration, but there's a group of people who are making it their business to question and check our work with the, from, from a perspective of potential biases. And that's a learning process for us as well. And that makes sense because I guess what we've seen in, say, the mortgage industry in the US is that the machine learning algorithms and often what we think of as the black box deep learning algorithms that don't seem to have clear inputs or guidance on how they make their decisions have in many cases been suspected of having inbuilt biases for racial reasons or gender reasons, as you mentioned. So I think it's certainly important that we apply those learnings into the new sectors as well. Yeah. Great. We finish our conversations with what we call our quick fire questions to get to know our interviewees a bit better. So how did you come up with the name Village Data Analytics or VIDA? So, you know, you can find names, I think, in my experience, at least in two ways. One is you kind of intuit the name and the other is you wreck your brains and kind of never really make a decision. In this case, you know, this is intuitive because A, it describes exactly what it is. We analyze villages using data. Uh, and B, I really like the acronym. And I assume that's the allusion to life or? That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that too. And I also thought it was interesting what you said earlier about the village being the fundamental unit of analysis in your work. That's an interesting take on how you conduct your analysis. Hmm. Perfect. And are there any books that you recommend to our listeners on either the off-grid sector or just that have influenced or inspired you? So I don't read books about the off-grid sector. Um, I read, if anything, reports because the industry is moving very fast and, and books tend to be, or I, I know, at least for, in my mind, tend to be a bit, you know, not the right medium for that. I love reading in general, but not about the off-grid sector. The second thing is I love reading books, but I really can't <laughs> pair reading books about the off-grid sector when I get home at night. <laughs> 
uh, there are some really, really interesting reports. Uh, many of them we have highlighted in our data and energy access report. So at, at each chapter we say, you know, what other people have written, what other reports we think are really useful and good. If I read, I try and read more about the cultural and economic context of the countries where we work, which is in South Asia, Southeast Asia, and Africa. I've written a book about India, for example, but about Indian politics. Perfect. So we can add your book to our recommended list then. Um, and <laughs> do you have any do you have any advice if someone is looking to start working in the off grid solar sector? Do you have any advice for them in entering the industry? There are very different kind of types of people who are interested in this industry. Um, I mean, you have perhaps if you want to stereotype, there might be the engineer and there might be the um, kind of economist and there might be the, the investor type. I think a really good initial combination is to work with people in the field. I think that's absolutely essential to spend a certain amount of time building these systems and or selling them or whatever it is that, that is being done, really going into the field. That's absolutely important. And the second thing that's, I think, very important, what gives a very good perspective is to look at it from the financing side, perhaps more from the equity than from the debt financing side. And once you've done these two things and you've kind of figured out, then either you start your own business and, and it's a really good time for people to start a business in electrification because there's an enormously positive ecosystem or supportive ecosystem around it, especially if you come from the countries and if you are, are providing a solution that helps specific individuals, so, so a, a real product at the end of the day. Now, if you've kind of figured these things out, then look into a deep look into the data and digitalization aspects of energy and energy access, I think could be very, very rewarding because as I said in the beginning, I think this is what's going to be one of the main change makers in the industry. And I was curious about what you said around equity versus debt and to really focus on the equity side, or, or rather that the learnings could be more interesting on the equity side. Is that because the equity holders have to have a longer term outlook and have to have a bigger stake in the table and are thinking about investments in a different way? Could you speak a bit more about why you said that? So perhaps I was perhaps making it a bit too simple because the reality is that there, on the debt side, you have a lot of this kind of programmed and soft loans. And you know the market on the debt side is not fully competitive. And on the equity side, it's also not really fully competitive yet. But what I would suggest is there are in the ecosystem, for every one person that provides a, a solution, there is perhaps one uh, other person that provides money. And there are three people who provide consulting services. And there are five people who provide ecosystem services, etc. So you want to be very close to, um, I think you would want to understand and analyze the companies that are doing the business and learn from, because they're quite heterogeneous. The markets are quite diverse. There are very good work that's being done, very good companies, very innovative companies. As I said, there's a lot of mistakes that are still being done. It's still, a, it's a young industry. So you'd want to be as close as possible to really understanding the different business models of companies and the, com and, and how they operate. And rather than being in that tail end of, of the financing where you give money to somebody else who gives money to somebody else who gives money to somebody else. Hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. Thank you.
And finally, to close our conversation, what are your predictions for the off-grid solar sector for the next five years? I think it's going to go through the roof. I think it's going to grow. I'm going to put myself out there now. I, I mean, obviously, nobody knows all kind of things can happen. See COVID nineteen, but um, I think it can change, and, and, and it can it can grow enormously. And one of the things that is giving me a lot of hope is that there is an enormous degree of entrepreneurships in the markets themselves. Kenya, South Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, India, of course, you know, there's an enormous amount of new businesses that are coming up. Technology costs are just coming down for energy generation technologies are just coming down so fast now, especially storage. I think that could be a big game changer as well. Regulations are come, becoming more smarter, hopefully. I mean, there's the learning process, but regulations are becoming better in terms of governments understanding. It's a really tricky one. Governments understanding how to create a market for uh, private companies to operate in, right? Which is not something that governments are typically very, very adept at, uh, especially in the utility sector. Um, so that's getting better. There's more a high degree of standardization. There is enough money available. And then I think that this whole data-based decision-making piece that I'm kind of harping on about all the time is absolutely crucial. And if somebody can figure out how to build a product that kind of reaches scale and uses data at scale, then that would be brilliant. And I think people are getting close to it. That's fantastic. We always like to end on an optimistic note. So thank you for that. And thank you also for your time and joining us on our podcast. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for, for having me and thank you for your really incisive and insightful questions. Thank you. That was our conversation with Tobias Engelmeyer from TFE Energy and Vita. If you have any questions or comments, please visit us on our website at www.distributingsolar.com. We have notes from our podcast, useful sources and contact details available. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a rating or review. It helps others find out about the podcast. Thank you for listening and join us next time when we'll be speaking with Maya Stewart from Yellow Solar Power, a solar home system company based in Malawi.